around because of foreign wars we wage. More to do with the colors blue and red. Many laws and too much government. Can you tell me where the Constitution went? The Bill of Rights is just hanging by a thread. So many people try to cross the border. Politicians build a new world order. Too many minds are convinced they should be led. I've gotta be free. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats, of course. With you as always, I am your ever so humble and, you know, mostly peaceful host, Tim Tap, coming to you live from historic Rome County, Tennessee, and we are live together on a Friday night. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to Chief, who has uh, already joined us in the chat room. Uh, happy to see Chief in here. He's, of course, the host of a great program in its own right, known as Simple Facts of Life. And by now, if you're a regular listener to this show, you've heard me tell you a million times that you should have went and checked out this show. So if you have not, if you're a procrastinator, what are you waiting for? Uh, it's not like there's going to be any less content to check out. Every week that goes by, there's a whole extra episode that you have got to go get caught up on. So go uh, check out Chief's show. Uh, glad to have you here, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, now, uh, we've got a lot of stuff to cover, a lot of stuff to get into today. Uh, got two guests scheduled for this evening, so my fingers are crossed uh, that we will not have the uh, ongoing shenanigans that I have been going uh, <laughs> dealing with as of recently. Uh, and things went fairly smoothly Wednesday night, and I, it's almost as if BTR is trying to convince me to keep paying the money or something. So we'll see what happens, but. Tonight, two guests scheduled top of the first hour – not top of the first hour, bottom of the first hour. I'm scheduled to be joined by the Texas-based – what's what's the word here? He's a researcher. 
Yes. Uh, he's become one of the leading authorities on COVID-19, both the financial cost to the country and uh, how the trajectory has went, not just in the United States but worldwide, but with a focus in the United States. And he is the author of COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial. I'm talking, of course, about Mr. Michael Beatrice. And uh, Michael will be joining us, and we'll be discussing how the left has lost its mind after Texas and a few other states have come out and said, hey, you know what? Uh, freedom is freedom. And uh, with the numbers going down and the vaccines widely available and everybody getting uh, the vaccinations that want the vaccinations, and and if you haven't yet, you're going to have a chance soon. And with the numbers dropping, uh, I still think it has a lot to do with the fact that they've changed how they're counting the numbers, you know, a more accurate, more realistic count. But with all that in play, uh, some folks have started saying, you know what, I'd kind of like to be reelected, and I don't think they'll reelect me in these states or elect me to higher office from these states if I don't start acting like what my constituents might want. But see, there is still power in the constituency. Now, in the bottom of the second hour tonight, we're joined to scheduled to be joined by Mr. Mark Mix. Uh, Mark, of course, will be returning. Uh, always good to have return guests. It means you didn't completely flub it up the previous visits, and, and he has been with us on more than one occasion previously. Uh, Mark, of course, is currently serving as the president of the National Right to Work Committee, as well as the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. And we're going to be talking about the PRO Act. Uh, the Democrats have brought that back and reintroduced it, and uh, basically it's a national effort to end right to work in roughly 27 states. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, we'll have that conversation. Uh, no better person to have that conversation with, at least not that I can think of from a expertise standpoint. It's on the front line of that battle. All right, so uh, thank you. If you're listening live, uh, of course, I understand that the overwhelming majority of you fine, fine folks out there do not listen live. You may be listening uh, to rebroadcast over terrestrial radio, some of the great stations out there like KYAH 540 AM, Utah's Talk Authority, and, of course, uh, our good friends in Columbia, South Carolina as well. Got to give full homage to uh, Late Night in the Midlands as the flagship. Good, good Good talk radio over at WCET. I'm stalling because I'm trying to move some stuff around and get a page up. Uh, my multitasking, I'm not very subtle. But uh, yeah, anyway, WCET over in Columbia, South Carolina. You can hear that at WCETFM.com. It is a good place to. Uh, uh, listen anywhere across the country. You get to hear this program along with a lot of other great programs. They talk about a lot of stuff. Also, want to give shout outs to uh, some of the folks that we are not currently having visiting with us in the chat room, but uh, probably will. Gave shout outs Wednesday night. Uh, actually, was uh, surprised to see Annie Ubellis join us Wednesday night. Uh, Wednesday night actually marked the first live broadcast at BTR that I've done uh, in at least two weeks. Uh, now, been doing some uploading, and then my internet issues got even wonkier as they were trying to do upgrades in the area to the point that I couldn't even upload stuff, couldn't get the bandwidth to upload. So I had some recorded stuff but couldn't get it anywhere. Uh, now, 
technically, I suppose I probably could have taken a thumb drive and found someplace outside of my area, but uh, didn't have a whole lot of access. Uh, so, you know, going to moan and whine and complain because, you know, hey, it's Friday night. Let's get it out. It's been a heck of a week, guys. But Annie Ubellis was with us Wednesday night, and she was hanging out in the chat room. And I uh, want to give a shout-out once again to Anne and her great radio program uh, known as Southern Sense Talk Radio. Uh, go visit her over at southern-sense. That's southern-sense.com. Uh, from there, you can discern your preferred method of listening to her show, uh, along with keeping up with everything else that she's up to, and she is usually up to a lot. Also want to once again thank Ron Edwards for being with me uh, Wednesday evening, as he often is. Check out the Ron Edwards American Experience when you get the opportunity. And uh, don't let me leave out uh, the fine, fine folks like Don Smith over the, the Don Smith Show. And, of course, all the great hosts over at uh, Global Patriot Radio Network. Those are some fine, fine folks. And, and you can find all those people if you are so inclined. Uh, easiest place to find them, and in some cases the only place to find them, at blogtalkradio.com. You go to that landing page. You punch in the names of those shows I just gave you, and you will find each and every one of them. I uh, also want to give a shout-out to Bigfoot, uh, blogger extraordinaire. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we've got uh, Chief already commenting in the chat room and said, from the files of that's what he should have said, Greg Abbott, quote, I have to defer to the president on the question of how Neanderthals think, since I'm not old enough to have known any. <laughs> All right. So with that being said, um, let's let's jump right in. Uh, when is Biden going to actually come out and you know, at least pretend with a little more frequency like he's actually in charge. I mean, it was pretty clear. He tried to have this little moment the other day, and as soon as he was ready to take some questions, they quickly faded him out because they didn't want him taking any questions. They don't want Biden off script. Operation P pads and knee pads is definitely not ready for prime time, but make no mistake about it, the power, whoever the power actually is, the uber-leftist power behind the scenes, they are still moving at warp speed. They are pushing us towards the Great Reset with as much energy and fire as they can muster. We've already seen their efforts uh, to push forward a gun control bill, the likes of which would just go beyond the pale of what is and is not constitutional. Uh, the Constitution is not even an afterthought for these folks at the moment. We now have seen their unconstitutional effort to try to nationalize the elections with H.R. Bill 1. They're still trying to desperately push this next round of <clears throat> so-called COVID relief where nearly – Nearly $2 billion of spending, all borrowed money, with only a small fraction of it actually going to help the American people. Uh, well, only going directly to the American people at any rate. I just – I don't understand why anybody is still even pretending that uh, barely there Beijing Biden uh, has even the face 
even the appearance of being a moderate because he's clearly not. Don't know that he ever has been, not really. If you took the time to follow where Biden has been during the majority of his political career. I mean, he had nearly 50 years in D.C., nearly 50 years of voting records, statements, claims, nearly 50 years of being in the public's eye, of knowing or not knowing how the winds were blowing. In amongst that half a century, almost, of time in D.C., he had next to no accomplishments other than to continue to get reelected. Oh, I got to be the vice president for Barack Hussein Alu Akbar Obama. Ooh, also another major accomplishment. He was Obama's Dan Quell. Safe choice in that category. Nah, he's a doddering old white guy who's not really going to get in the way and will probably just do whatever I tell him. Good choice for Obama. So when we have seen what he's supported, when we have seen what he's said and done, when we have seen him personally attack people like Clarence Thomas, what on earth made anybody ever think he was a moderate? Oh, well, you see, we got to this point where, unfortunately, he's starting to look like he's moderate in comparison to where the rest of the party has gone. But have we really gotten to the part where the rest of the party is where we want to set the standard? I mean, granted, clearly, that's where all the uber leftists want it to be. In fact, they're probably not satisfied with it being not quite far enough to the left. How do we know this? Because we see the breakneck pace at which they're trying to usher in the Great Reset, which has become almost as scary-sounding as spooky dude George Soros. Ooh, George Soros, he's the boogeyman to the right. Well, there's a reason for that, guys, because he really is a bad guy with a lot of resources trying to do bad things, and in most cases just for the heck of it. Shouldn't we be concerned when bad actors with a lot of resources are out behaving badly, trying to do harm to a system that has single-handedly created the most liberty that has existed on this planet? See, that's the scary word, though. That, that, that's the word that nobody really seems to understand. Nobody gets it anymore. Unless you have stood a post, unless you have served and defended this nation, you – probably have no idea what liberty even means. You can be a student of history and not know. You can make some personal sacrifices and still not really get it. In fact, sadly enough, there are people that wear the uniform in the modern age that don't really get it because for the current administration, for the previous administration that the top guy – currently had worked with before, uh, the military was nothing but another social experiment. It needed to be watered down. America needed to be taken down a peg or two. It needs to be reduced a notch or two. All this uh, 
American exceptionalism, uh, that's no good for the rest of the world. Only except it is or was. I mean we need to recapture it, reclaim it if it's going to continue to be. If we're going to continue to be that shining beacon, if we're going to continue to be that source of inspiration to the world, a bright shining star in a world that's otherwise dark, dull, lackluster, filled with misery. But the problem is you know, despite my recent uh, podcasting numbers… My primary audience is still the American people. That's who I typically address. Now, it's a message that works just as well for our friends across the pond. It works just as well to our neighbors to the north, people who have traditionally enjoyed a relatively uh, robust amount of freedom, people who claim to embrace the ideas of liberty and personal expression, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of press, that kind of thing. They embrace the ideas, but with a lot more limitations than us honorary, hard-headed Americans have uh, just dared to exude, which is why we need to be the ones to light the way. Now, American exceptionalism isn't based on identity politics because America is at its best when all identities – are working for the same end goal, and that is actual equality, not equity. You can't artificially create equity. Any attempt to artificially manipulate equity only serves to devalue the end result as well as the person that's gaining said equity. See, they know that. They're the wordsmiths, and they're trying to… Make you believe that these words mean something else, but at the same time, they're using the right words. They're using the words that they want to use. They're constructing the narrative very carefully. Now, am I telling you anything you don't already know? Probably not. I mean, even if you're brand new to the world of politics and opinion news and radio and podcasting and Whatever else form you can consume this broadcast in, if you're relatively new and you haven't heard these ideas, well, you're going to get to hear them a lot as you listen to other folks, and hopefully you keep coming back to listen here. It's not, a, it's not a new idea. It's not a new – they've been working it. There's literally been groups of globalist elitists that have been trying to destroy our constitution since before the ink was dry. Because it's an impediment, and right now I, I'm reminded of an interview that was given by a, a certain John Curry a little while back when he made the statement that it was going to be breathtaking the pace at which they were prepared to move forward. They're prepared to move forward with all the things that they need to do to usher in this great reset. And this Great Reset, it's about Chinese-style control. It's about social credit ratings. It's about the top dogs, the uber elitist maintaining an elite status and everybody else being kept under their thumb. It's about crashing and destroying the American economy, devaluing the U.S. dollar to the point that it's worth less than a Mexican peso in the 1980s. 
which, by the way, if you're not old enough to remember, or if you're so old that you can barely remember, spoiler, it was not very much. Now, am I being an alarmist? Am I being a tinfoil hat guy? Am I being over the top? Am I fear-mongering when I try to sound the alarm here? Uh, no. If you take the time, if you do the research, if you look and see how the all the dots are connected, it becomes pretty clear. What's at play here? The, the one thing that I've been struggling with for a long time. It's been why did it seem like major industries, major companies, top dog companies in major industries, why did it seem like they were embracing socialist tenants? You know, it, it was a head-scratcher. I didn't understand. How is this the case? Why is this the case? How does this continue? I don't know. I don't get it. What, what does this – how does it – and I chalked it up to the youngest people – uh, becoming indoctrinated at such a deep levels, and then eventually CEOs and board members were people who were indeed indoctrinated themselves. But the more I've looked at this and the more I've actually been kind of picking around the cracks of all this so-called great reset that the left have been pushing for since right before Obama was elected, and they thought they were going to be able to push it through once they got him elected because they were ready to fundamentally change America. More I've been looking into that and seeing the details and seeing how the banks are lining up and seeing how international uh, private equity industries are lining up to, to start pushing these social scores. The more I've come to realize that these guys realized that we were already on that track, and they just didn't want to be on the wrong side because their greedy little selves wanted to keep being – Top dog. They wanted to keep making top dollar. They didn't want to be the folks that were caught unaware and ended up falling by the wayside because they weren't worthy according to their social scores. There's not too many other explanations. I'm concerned, to say the least. But now I, I've pretty much come to the conclusion that yes, yes, that that is what's actually at play here. So I'm going to sound that alarm, and I hope other people will continue to sound the alarm. I hope that we will pay attention, that we'll start looking at the information. Take the challenge that I issue at the end of every broadcast and do your own homework. Stop stop just listening to what other people are – and certainly, certainly try to go to source documentation whenever you can for as long as it's still going to be available. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chief just uh, shared in the chat room uh, a graph said Biden the moderate, and, he, <laughs> and he's literally got a scale going over here with uh, the left way over here, center over here, right. He's got normal folks uh, somewhat right of center, and he's got Joe just barely a little bit right of the far left. Uh, that's That's about right. So compared to the uber leftist, Biden's quite moderate. Uh, so he's got it. All right. Uh, that's enough blathering from me. Uh, let's go ahead and take the uh, mid-hour break a smidge early, and then if I have a little time on the other side, we'll go ahead and uh, continue the conversation a bit beforehand. But quick reminder, 
uh, here shortly, bottom of the hour, scheduled to be joined by Mr. Michael Beatrice. So don't go away. Stay right where you're at. And in the meanwhile, enjoy the Edwards Notebook. The presidential elections could look quite different in 2024 and beyond if Democrats and rhinos have their dirty way. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, House Democrats have totally given up governing on behalf of we the people and simply desiring to perpetually rule over us via cheating and scandals. So now they are in full support of the scandalous H.R. 1 bill or the so-called For the People Act. Among the numerous horrendous aspects of H.R. 1 would do away with voter identification. Nationwide, allow for anyone, including illegal border crossers, to vote. And the GOP also speculated that H.R. 1 is a strategic political move to grant Washington, D.C. statehood and ensure two more Democrat seats forever. Based upon my observations, it appears that Democrats are prepared to do away with constitutional restraints on government and pave the way for leftist-style officials of one-party rule with no tolerance for healthy debate or dissent. A sure recipe for sickening disaster. May God rescue us from this madness. I'm Ron Edwards. Check out the... RonEdwards.com. Ron Edwards, the new voice of America. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. Hello, this is Dan Perkins with your songs and stories for soldiers, veterans, tip of the day. Did you know that the unemployment rate for homeless veterans was twice the national average? And without proper shoes, it's hard to get a job? Here's your veterans tip of the day. People from all over the country helped us with our annual songs and stories for soldiers, shoes and socks for homeless veterans. There was a time this summer where we believed that probably it wouldn't be successful because of the pandemic, but decided to go ahead and do it anyway. We reached out in the local community and on the various radio shows that I'm on, asked for their support. In a little over three weeks, we received 400 pairs of shoes and over 1,000 pairs of socks for homeless veterans so they can go out and look for a job and have a decent pair of shoes to wear. We at Songs and Stories for Soldiers and all the 400-plus soldiers who will receive these shoes and socks say thank you for your generosity. This has been your Songs and Stories for Soldiers, Veterans Tip of the Day. We often find ourselves arguing statistics with anti-gun people, but let's put the conversation into perspective. I'll give you some stats, but also expose the anti-gun left's real motives for gun control. First of all, don't you think that anyone who really wants to save lives would focus their attention on an area where the most lives are lost? The gun grabbers like to use the number of 30 to 40,000 gun-related deaths per year. But if we take out suicides, which are 60% of those gun-related deaths, which, by the way, are not reduced by the absence of guns, and we take out law enforcement-related deaths, in other words, good guys killing bad guys, we're left with about 14,880 gun-related homicides. But here's where it gets interesting. The majority of those gun-related homicides are gang-related. So let's say we didn't have the gang problem we have in this country. The number of gun-related homicides shrinks to 2,976 per year in America. Here's another interesting fact that the anti-gun left doesn't want you to know. 
the majority of gang-related violence occurs in Democrat-run cities across this country that are highly gun-restricted, by the way, and often allow violent illegals safe harbor. What that means is good people living within those cities are denied their right to protect themselves against the human violence that Democrats encourage with their bad policies. Now let's compare that to some other things that the anti-gun left could be working on if they really wanted to save lives. Drunk driving takes almost 11,000 lives per year in America. 47,000 lives are lost per year in America due to suicide, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia being two of the leading causes of suicide, not guns. But one of the biggest causes of preventable deaths in America is abortion. Almost 330,000 lives are taken per year in America by people committing abortion. Now let me give you a piece of information that the anti-self-defense crowd doesn't want you to know. How many lives do you think are saved every year because of guns? The answer is two and a half million. Every year in America, two and a half million lives are potentially saved by the use of firearms. Now this doesn't necessarily mean good guys killing bad guys. This most often means just the mere presence of a gun deters a bad guy. And 46% of those lives saved are women. This is a study that was done by Gary Kleck, a Florida criminologist, and backed by data from the CDC. So why do you think the gun grabbers never share this information? Well, some would argue that they don't really care about saving lives as much as they care about disarming their fellow citizens and preventing them from independently protecting themselves and their families. Gun control is a top-down method that puts government in charge of the lives and safety of people under the guise of public safety. It's the first step in stealing the freedom our founders fought for. The anti-left has already decided that they are willing to give up their freedom to government. The problem is they can't have their government-controlled utopian society unless you get on board. And real Americans are clearly not getting on board. Gun control is a way of forcing you into dependence, whether you like it or not. Now, we're never going to cure the evil in the hearts of killers, but we can stop them. So, to the gun grabbers, do you really want to save lives? Then get to work on the real causes of human violence and help us restore our gun rights so good people can protect themselves. Help us save lives rather than ending them before they get a chance to take their first breath. I'm Dan Wass. To check out my webcast, go to LoadedMike.com. To check out my book series, go to GoodGunBadGuy.net. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. Thank you so very much for staying with us through that break. And, of course, that is Mr. Dan Wass. Uh, please check out the Good Gun, Bad Guy series. And uh, speaking of authors uh, and uh, people who generally have a pretty good idea of what's going on, even when the mainstream legacy media might not necessarily want you to, welcome to the show for the first time a COVID-19 researcher, a man who's based out of Texas, which right now was, of course, the heart and center of the battle to reopen completely in this country. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Michael Beatrice. Uh, Michael, first and foremost, thank you so very much for joining us this evening. We're very glad to have you with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
All right. Uh, for the benefit of uh, the listeners, just in case somebody may not be familiar with your work, uh, let everybody know a little bit about yourself before we get into uh, tonight's topics. Sure. Um, my name is Michael Beatrice. Um, I'm from Detroit. I, I live in Dallas uh, for for uh, the last 20 years or so. And um, over the last 25 years, I've written uh, 15 books, business books, published by McGraw Hill. And uh, and so this one was a little out of my wheelhouse. And I was following kind of recreationally about a year ago. Um, there were two cruise ships that were quarantined with COVID. Uh, one was off Japan, <clears throat> and one was off the coast of California. And if you remember the second one, it was the Grand Princess. I'd actually been, it's the only cruise I'd been on. I'd been on that ship, so I followed it a little more intently. And when it was porting into Oakland, if you recall, it was sort of covered on the news like it was the Bronco chase. And then <laughs> when it landed uh, and everybody disembarked, nothing really happened. And I thought that was strange. You know, Wuhan had locked down, uh, and there was a lot of attention on COVID. And, uh, and then about 10 days later, the Imperial College released a model that said that in a do-nothing scenario, which was the cruise ships, that was a do-nothing scenario, we would lose over 2 million Americans by summer. So I thought, God, that seems strange. So I took the um, model assumptions and plugged them into the demographics of those two cruise ships. We should have had 155 deaths on those cruise ships, and we had 10. And so I knew this was going to be, um, you know, these lockdowns were a disproportionate response. And when we ended up with 40 million people unemployed in April, that's really what connected me to my past books and what caused me to um, do this research and, and uh published the book last summer, and then did a second edition of it in November. And I'm actually working on a different book right now for a summer release on, on the same thing. All right. So it's fair to say at this point you were brought in through a normal level of curiosity. And, and clearly as an author, uh, somebody who's been focused in business, you're accustomed to following numbers. Uh, you, you see how charts you get to the bottom line of things. So you kind of like when things – equal out. You like when an equation is balanced, so to speak. And this just kind of started screaming out to you right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, I didn't I didn't take a political angle. You could read my whole book and listen to all my interviews and, and not really know who I voted for. Um, I didn't take a political angle and I didn't come at it from a political angle. I came at it from what is a proportionate response to this? Is this a risk, you know, sort of a category five type of risk? Um in terms of a pandemic. And so if you look at the, um, all the planning guides that the WHO and the CDC did before COVID, uh, w there was no scenario uh, where, you know, with, with the risk that COVID posed, where we would have done anything but close schools for four weeks, which is basically, let's say it's at its peak. So let's say if you follow those playbooks, we should have done two things, um, close schools uh, probably in April for four weeks, and then probably um, textbook-wise, uh, maybe close schools in December because we had another, you know, really a, another wave then. Other than that, um, and then wearing masks for the people that were sick, that were symptomatic, not statewide mask mandates. That was the playbook. There was nothing in there about closing businesses. The most extreme measure they, they suggested was staggering shifts, and they did talk about social distancing, and those things are all real. Um, we we just went we, we just went into a disproportionate response. I mean, we went off the deep end, and and it feels like um, the data isn't supporting this, right? I mean, they're talking about all this stuff like we shouldn't be opening up, we shouldn't be opening up. We're at three percent hospitalizations nationwide with COVID. 
hospitals are going broke again, right? Because people are still afraid to go out and get things that they can probably delay. So the healthcare industry is in another difficult situation. With 3% hospitalizations, what number works, right? I mean, Governor DeWine in, in Ohio um, announced that they would reopen when they get to 50 cases per 100,000 people. That's a very low number. Um, when you look at all, when you look at the false positives that you can get, and how many people? I mean, we've got maybe a couple hundred million people that have been infected by now. So, um, I, I just feels like it feels like we're off the rails now. Yeah. Except in Texas. Uh, well, I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's uh, too many folks that would argue that unless their only source of information comes from the uh, legacy media outlets that uh, we've just recently got uh, an admission. Uh, from one of the bigger of the big wigs that uh, the COVID response, the pandemic response is good for ratings. Uh, it I, Back in the heights uh, earlier uh, this early summer, uh, late spring, uh, it was almost being reported like panic porn. Uh, that's basically what I was calling it on air. And no there's a motivation other than keeping us informed here. So – in your effort, uh, when you wrote COVID-19 lockdowns on trial, uh, you just you laid out the facts, and, and I appreciate that. This should never have been a political issue. Uh, we can't let a crisis go to waste, according to one side of the political aisle anymore, and clearly we see that at play. But you're right. The one good thing from all the lockdowns, I suppose, is the fact that we have almost no flu season so far this year because those same practices work fairly well there, but – what what should be the proper response in moving forward, and how long can we expect lockdown states like Newsom over in California and Wichmer and Michigan to be able to get away with this before the populations there see what's happening in these other states and start demanding change, do you think? Well, I think they're seeing it now, right? I mean, you've got a recall uh, in process right now uh, with a couple million signatures uh, in California for Newsom. But, um, you know, the Texas thing is really, really big, right? It's the second largest state in the country. And for Texas to go full open, uh, remove capacity restrictions and mask mandates and not even let local municipalities issue mask mandates, what you're going to see is no bump in activity, and I can go into why, but we won't see a bump in active COVID activity from that. That will put enormous pressure. There will be a quick domino uh, falling. The school season is lost this year. That's just gone. So, um, you know, we've got 50 million kids that have basically lost a year and a half of quality education. The one thing that's unconscionable about that is that in these planning guides that the CDC and the WHO had put together before COVID, they planned on kids being the source of 35% of the spread. Kids were super spreaders. They're super spreaders of the flu. If you're a parent, you know that. Uh, and so, and if there's one other gift that I'd say COVID gave us, um, and by the way, I'm not a COVID denier. I lost a relative to, in a care facility to COVID in Detroit. Um, and, and I kept my parents under wraps. They're 89 years old in Detroit, and, and, and I'm very aware of what COVID could do. It's just what is the proportionate response. With kids, the greatest thing that COVID gave us is they're not only not statistical transmitters, they're not really statistically at risk. I mean, the percentage of COVID deaths to total deaths in uh, you know people under 20 is it's statistically zero. There's some outliers, but you don't plan – you know, you don't shut down education for a year and a half for basically zero percent. It's crazy, Tim. Yeah. 
I mean, and that's the the type of information that uh, I've been trying to get out. Which why I love the opportunity when I saw that you were available to reach out and get you on here, because this is information kind of being set by the primary purveyors of information. And, and right now, uh, if, if I was to phrase uh, a headline uh, a certain way uh, and express the same type of information, I could get bumped off of Twitter for doing it. I could get banned off of Facebook or spend some time in Facebook. You know, the social media is involved here. A legacy media no doesn't want this information out. And the insanity comes from the fact that, again, I'll say it, this should have never been politicized. It was too important, and this information still continues to be a primary concern because like you're – like you said, nobody's denying its reality here. Now, I, I have heard some folks, sadly, that uh, believe it's completely just a scam from the beginning. It's like, no, I, I know too many people who've been affected. I know too many people who've been sick. But I also know from how all the false uh, positives were done, how some of the states were actually counting cases to artificially inflate the numbers, that there's been a lot of intentional mishandling and misrepresentation too. Uh, other than trying to continue to get this information out and working on your next book and, and trying to help promote these things, what do you think is the most important way that uh, just any other average person uh, can move forward as far as discovering the, the true facts and helping to share that since we're being squashed in most ways that we spread information now? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, one of the things that I've discussed with um, a number of people is has social media hurt or helped this thing and so in some ways um, social media has has provided channels to um, spread a little bit more panic for sure um, but in a way I almost feel like if you didn't have Twitter you wouldn't have I mean when I first started this I was searching on the news you know clearly you know guys like you and me were, were kind of news junkies right and so when i was following the news in late march and early april i thought god this doesn't add up right and i started to do i wasn't on twitter but i was doing some research on this and i couldn't find anybody that was seeing what i see and i went to a lot of different twitter account i wasn't on twitter at the time but i went to a lot of twitter accounts just to read what they were saying smart people right megan kelly was one and and actually a bunch of people on um uh, from NBC, uh, Fox News, you know, both sides, really. I was lo just looking for what people were saying. Ann Coulter tweeted out a guy named Alex Berenson, you know, some stuff that he was putting out. And I fact-checked his work. He was the, really the first one. Uh, and uh, and all his stuff, pop, you know, checked down. And I, I popped him an email, and he emailed me back, and we were talking about the data. And it was a week later that I decided to write the book. But, you know, Twitter's really the, the – um, the primary channel for kind of reality data. It all stems from there. Uh, and a lot of it stems from a group called rationalground.com. There's a, about 50 people on there led by Justin Hart, and, and they've done a, a kick-ass job of getting, you know, just real reality information. And then that seeped into places like occasionally you've seen uh, the Wall Street Journal and, the, and even the New York Times has done some decent reporting on the school situation. But, um, yeah, it's, it's – um, if you only, you know, you think about it. If we if we didn't have social media or or cable, you know, we'd look around and think, God, it doesn't seem like a lot's happening. But our only avenues would be the three networks and the newspapers. And if they didn't report on this, we'd all be like, Well, God, maybe this is really bad. But but we'd be looking around and saying, Well, yeah, we know some people that have gotten sick. But like in my county, I've got a million people in my county in Metro Dallas. 
Um, and we've had very little COVID activity. If you didn't know there was a pandemic, you wouldn't know there was a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, on that topic, though, we, we've seen some good folks out there fighting to get the information, yourself among them. We've also seen a lot of people that for other purposes have wanted to kind of keep the information from uh, from ruminating and germinating and for folks to get a real sense of how things are going. Uh, as you've seen this go, have you had any pushback? Has anybody challenged you directly, uh, maybe even tried to, to draw you into the cancel culture based on your book? Or did you ground it well enough with no political slants that they just couldn't find a way to attack you? Well, my, my book um, was initially banned on Amazon, um, but my book wasn't singled out. Everything was banned on Amazon that was, um, that was COVID-related for, um, you know, for a couple months there. Uh, and so I, I, I sent it into them to be self-published. It's the only way you can get a book out that fast. Uh, and uh, and yeah. so they, I wasn't singled out, so I didn't take it personal. Uh, and so you kind of had that. But I can tell you I've quieted down my Twitter feed, right, because I don't want to lose the information and the, the connection with, with – um, with readers and getting other sources. But, uh, yeah, the, the social media guys, you know, it's really funny because you, I don't know what this is. What do you have, like a few tech guys sitting in a room that either create an, a logarithm or they actually, you know, do searches and read these things because there's no way they'd be qualified um, to, to be the arbiters of what – I mean, if you've got someone like Scott Atlas, who's, who's a really smart guy, right, he was on the – um, Trump's COVID task force uh, back last summer and in, into the fall, you know, stuff that he had put together was was taken off of YouTube. I mean, um, and Atlas isn't a COVID denier. He's just saying, God, the lockdowns are very harmful, very, very harmful, and they're not proving to do anything. I wrote an article a couple months ago called The Burden of Proof, and my challenge was, if you believe that lockdowns work, why aren't the top 20 most stringent states, and those include New York and California and Illinois and Michigan and, and a number of others. And if, why aren't they doing a lot better than places like Florida and Georgia and, and Texas uh, and Oklahoma, et cetera, and the Dakotas? So you can't find correlating data that says lockdowns result in fewer deaths per million, and you can't find statewide mask mandates do better. 17 of the top 25 states for COVID-19 deaths um, all have statewide mask mandates. They should be at the bottom, right? And even if you take out the early hits like New York and New Jersey, you know, take those out. You, you still have a high majority of the worst states. You know, you take Rhode Island, who's been very strict. They've climbed, climbed up to number three in the country in deaths per million ahead of both of the Dakotas. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of that, uh, based on what you've seen, uh, is there any rhyme or reason to this, or is it a matter of who achieves herd immunity uh, within the populations? That, or has that even been a thing based on the research that you've done? Look, herd immunity is the only way out of any pandemic, right? It, it's The question is, do you achieve it by getting enough of the population infected, like the Hong Kong flu, the Asian flu, and of course the Spanish flu, uh, the, you know, the biggest one in, you know, uh, a couple hundred years. Um, but the only way you get through these things is by getting a population immunity. You get it by getting everybody infected and they get out of it, or that's a natural immunity, or you get vaccinated. 
Um, we're in a situation now where we've had well over half the population that's, that's been infected, and we've got a very high, you know, about 50% of our elderly, the people over 65, uh, they're now vaccinated. So eventually this thing is, is gonna, it's gonna fizzle out fast. But the, the real question is, um, you know, if they're gonna condemn Texas for opening up, what number works, right? What number, because uh, cases is a fluid number. You've got false positives and it's also a product of testing. You, and, and, and the death counts are, you know, the death counts are about two thirds of the official death counts are real. The other third are incidental, um, meaning they may or may not have tested. They probably did, but some are probables. So, and those are people that didn't die from COVID just with it. So you still have a substantial number there. Again, I'm no COVID denier, but if hospitalizations are 3% right now, what number works? What do you want? You know, are you trying to get to a, the problem with someone like Dr. Fauci and all these, uh, a lot of these other quote public health experts, is they're trying to get this down to a zero COVID. It's almost like you're trying to get every last roach out of your house, and so you decide to nuke the house. Um, and, and you're still waiting to rebuild until, you know, versus sending in an exterminator and getting kind of surgical about it. And so what you never really hear, all these, these subject matter experts, these healthcare, you know, public health is more than just COVID. There's psychological health. There's, there's the education aspect of it. There's um, hundreds of thousands of untreated medical ailments that have gone unnoticed and undiagnosed um, in this in this time, and so there's been a, a just an absence of sort of critical thinking and balance balance of of, of uh, public health care through this. Right, and it's funny that you bring up uh, Dr. Fauci because he's a good example of somebody who, based on his education, based on his uh, uh, work title. For the last several years, and I'm just going to leave it at that, uh, he's a man who should know better. I mean he does have a fundamental understanding of how pandemics work and, and how you get through them, and, and yes, one gold is admirable, and he has early on made the excuse that he gets to make his recommendations based on solely the health side of it, but even then – uh, the recommendations at this point have become so ridiculous that it doesn't really serve much of a health advantage to anyone. Uh, he should know better. Uh, I, I don't want you to, to try to put any type of uh, assertions towards what you think his motivations are, but I think we can both agree that uh, Dr. Fauci knows that what he's suggesting now really doesn't help in this battle, wouldn't he? Fauci's like Fauci, Tim Fauci's like a. He's like a general after 9-11, and let's imagine that Bush was talking to one of the military generals and said, how do we get the Taliban in Afghanistan? Fauci's the general that would say, we need to drop nukes all over Afghanistan, and that will kill them. That will, that will eliminate the problem, um, and never mind the collateral damage, right? That's what Fauci is. Fauci is a one-dimensional, zero-COVID guy. And if you understand that about him, you just need to sort of temper what he's saying. But he shouldn't be a public policy guy. He's, he's, uh, he's a zero COVID guy, and there, there's a big difference there. That's why we don't go in and just, you know, bomb every place that, that might get under our skin or do something, or certainly even as extreme as 9-11. You have to be more surgical about it. 
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I I think we're going to have to leave things right there, sir, because I just happened to glance at the time, and we are uh, nearly out. But before we go, I want to give you an opportunity. Please let everybody know where they can find the book. And uh, uh, if you've got a time frame when you're expecting the new book to be out, feel free to share that as well. And also, sir, if you're still inviting people to follow you on social media, uh, uh, feel free to throw that out as well. Sure. So the book is COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, I reduced the price down to, you know, three bucks for a Kindle and the paperback is as cheap as Amazon will let me do it. Look, I'm not in this to try to, you know, make some money off of it. I really want the information to get out there. And so I cut the price down to as low as Amazon will let me sell it uh, to get that information out there. And, uh, and you know, my email address, uh, contact information is in the book. And I'd love to hear from readers, and, uh, and I would love to come back and talk to you, Tim. All right. We'll definitely have to get back together. I say that uh, in a few months uh, when Texas is still doing fantastic, which I have a feeling they will be, uh, we probably will have plenty to get back together and talk about then. So uh, in the meanwhile, keep up the good work. Uh, good luck with the new book and uh, continued success, sir, and uh, hopefully we'll get together uh, fairly soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Have a great evening. You too. Ladies and gentlemen, that is, of course, uh, Mr. Michael Beatrice. Uh, Again, uh, there is a link in the show description at BTR that will take you to Amazon and directly to the COVID-19 lockdowns on trial. Uh, I really do enjoy the fact that The book is once again written the way I wish the media had covered this story from the beginning. Politics was left out. This is literally about getting you actual, usable, viable information that might let a reasonably intelligent person or perhaps even a Neanderthal in Texas to be able to make choices for themselves. What what a novel idea. What a concept. Or maybe that's just me. I'm just saying. All I know is that it is Friday night, and I'm feeling pretty good uh, with where that conversation has led. So please, if you're interested in picking up the book, uh, feel free to follow that link, or you can just go directly to Amazon, dadgummit. Now, I would like for you to follow the link in the show description. Uh, so that they know it came from here uh, to find it. That way Amazon will say, okay, you're sending traffic our way. Uh, Just me trying to get a a tiny little piece of that Amazon pie. Uh, Trust me, it's not much. But if you go there and you decide to make a purchase, if you follow the link in the show description, uh, then you'll get there. And I will be updating the website a little later too. Uh, I have not yet this week updated the tapintothetruth.com website. But once I do, uh, that same link will be available uh, there as well uh, on the homepage. So you know you can be looking for it later this weekend if you're so inclined, and I hope that you will be. Uh, I see that uh, Vorpalbyte has uh, joined us in the chat room. Uh, Vorp says that I would tell you a coronavirus joke, but it would take two weeks for you to get it. <laughs> Actually, uh, I do like that. That's that's pretty clever. All right, so here we are. Uh, it is nearing the end of the first hour, which since the show is rebroadcast on terrestrial radio uh, and those terrestrial radio stations uh, will usually only play an hour at a time uh, for most of them anyway. 
uh, do a little thing where I reset the hour. So if you're here live, don't go anywhere. Hour number two will start just after this. But if you're one of those people that I'm having to say goodbye to right now, please remember that uh, you really don't need to take anything that I say. Don't take a bit of it for gospel. I, I don't want you to trust a word, but I want you to think about what I've said. I want it to, to germinate in your mind there, and I want you to, to question, could there be some truth? And then I want you to go do your own research, your own homework, because you need to see for yourself what is and is not true. And besides that, occasionally I might get a, a few things uh, mistakenly incorrect. Uh, being a human, I'm not infallible. But I want you to have the best information available. So, as I said, don't take my word for any of it. Be prepared to put in some effort and most importantly to use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. And meanwhile, you guys out there, stay safe, stay healthy, and you know, be smart even if it goes against your nature. In the meanwhile, uh, like I said, if you're here live, don't go anywhere. Hour number two, just after this. For the rest of you, have a great rest of the day. We built a promise on a dream Like nothing else the world has seen we built a promise on a dream. We built a promise, we 13. We crossed the land bridge across the ocean a long, long time ago. We tracked the herds here. We followed fortune on the glacial ice and snow. We came as sailors. Searching for adventure We came in from the east We crossed the ocean We followed fortune And our numbers, they increased Before the people stepped onto the shore Two-thirds of the first ones to die Cause along with the traitors They brought new disease when it cultures collide We built a promise on a dream Like nothing else the world has seen We built a promise on a dream We built a promise we 13 
Broadcast of Tap into the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats, of course. With you as always, I am your ever so humble and, you know, mostly peaceful host, Tim Tap, coming to you live from historic Rome County, Tennessee. And glad to be live again. Been a while since I've been able to do the live broadcasting. Got back to it this past Wednesday. Was glad to. Tried to sneak in some here and there. Mostly been having to record and upload. It's been a whole thing. They've been my internet service provider's been doing a lot of upgrades to the internet in the region. It just had the internet service here uh, where my studio is in just such a buckle, and it became difficult to even just upload uh, after certain hours uh, if I'd recorded. And of course, 
for those of you uh, who have listened to some of those recorded uh, broadcasts, though, I would love to get some feedback, see what you thought, see if you like the audio better, uh, see if you liked my minimal rambling because sometimes I do get distracted with folks in the chat room, which I love having the interaction, which is why I love doing it live. Uh, I I could see at some point, though, maybe uh, if if you guys that enjoy the show did like that enough – Maybe changing up things so that the Sunday broadcast becomes more of a true podcast, pre-recorded kind of thing. Uh, if the audio is significantly better, if if you just like the way the format is, if the more focused uh, mind. So if you guys have checked some of those out, let me know. If you haven't, I ask a big favor. Uh, if you wouldn't mind to, to kind of go back and check some of those where they were pre-recorded and just let me know what you think. Usually I don't have too much trouble getting feedback like that from you guys. Uh, so – now, where are we? Well, first of all, uh, for those of you that are listening to terrestrial radio and hearing the rebroadcast of the show, then there's a really good chance that you didn't get to hear tonight's first hour. Uh, you're definitely not hearing the show live, not right now anyway. At some point, we may be getting uh, back on uh, – WCET live a little bit later. Hopefully, we can work that out. Uh, I still have some work to do with the studio and get all my equipment set up to do that, and I really haven't been focused on it. Yeah, I've been bad. I'm sorry. But for the benefit of those of you that are listening to the rebroadcast, the time of the live broadcast just so happens to be Friday night. It is March 5th. It is 2021, and it just happens to be a few brief moments after 8 p.m. Eastern. So welcome to the show. Uh, back in the first hour of today's show, if you missed it, uh, feel free to track down the podcast pretty much just about anywhere you can hear a podcast. Uh, back in the first hour, I had a visit from Mr. Michael Beatrice. He's, of course, the author of COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial. He is a COVID-19 researcher. He's a business expert. He's written a bunch of business books, and then just away from the very get-go how the COVID cases on the cruise ships – which uh, I don't know how many of you guys even remember, but that is essentially supposedly how COVID uh, came into the country. Now, that's what we were told. Now, I tend to subscribe to the fact that I think COVID was uh, moving about the world uh, much earlier than anyone's officially acknowledged. I, I really do believe that to be the case based on stuff that was going on here locally as much as anything else. Uh, with that having been said, though uh, – it was a case where they acted like, oh, well, this would be nothing, and we're just going to turn these people loose, and ah, boom. So it was an interesting conversation, at least from his standpoint. And I want to encourage everybody to go check out uh, his book, COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial. In fact, if you're listening to BTR <coughs> – excuse me. That came from out of nowhere. Ah, if you're listening to BTR, there is a link in the show description that will take you to Amazon where you can pick up a copy. And uh, Like he mentioned, he's got it priced as low as Amazon will let him sell it just because he's trying to get the information out to folks. So uh, check it out if you don't care. Uh, also, uh, here at the bottom of this hour, hour number two of tonight's live broadcast, I am scheduled to be joined once again by Mr. Mark Mix, who is, of course, the president of the National Right to Work Committee, as well as currently serving as the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. We're going to be discussing uh, the reintroduction of the PRO Act, which, of course, is the Democrats' effort to end right to work. In approximately 27 states. Now, what we've been seeing in the last little bit is this full-blown effort by the political left here in the country 
to completely destroy the United States Constitution and completely uh, keep conservative voices from being able to even have a place to speak. You know, they got to send us to the re-education camps. So we've we've got to learn better, guys. We 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 should we should work harder to embrace critical race theory, and and we should try being anti-racist because simply not being racist isn't enough anymore, guys. It hasn't been for a while. Are you simply not racist? Not good enough. Do you happen to be white? Then you're racist whether you are or not because you can't help it. And, oh, does that make you angry? Well, that's just your white fragility showing. Ah, just another symptom. You can never, never not be racist. Can you believe that's where we're at now? We have come down this rabbit hole to the point that the Dr. Seuss family is voluntarily removing six titles from the catalog to never be printed again. Or at least for now. Maybe at some point there will be enough pushback to end this cancel culture, and the get-woke folks will kind of finally wake up and realize that they've all been played for chumps for a while. Because sorry, guys, but you have been. You're being used. You are, in their words, useful idiots for these globalist elitists that are looking to push that start button on the Great Reset. They're trying to sell you the bag of goods of socialism to make you think it sounds really good so that conservatives like me will fight you uh, on the arena of ideas uh, against the evils of socialism. And we're so busy fighting back and forth how I'm talking about how evil socialism is and you're talking about how evil capitalism is when I say I don't like capitalism. I like free market economies. It's not exactly the same thing. Uh, capitalism is your word. Not mine, but we're so busy fighting back and forth that neither one of us are paying attention to what the George Soros globalist elitist people with too many resources and not enough nice things to do in their life, what they're really up to. We can't keep an eye on them, and we certainly can't stop them as long as we're fighting amongst themselves, and that's the way they like it. <sighs> Vorp in the uh, chat room says, you can buy mine Comp. But not Dr. Seuss. And yeah, how ridiculous is that? Uh, Dr. Seuss is notoriously not racist. But but we live in a world now where this idea of critical race theory has become prevalent, where within organizations like the information packets, the toolkits for teachers in some states start talking about how children start becoming racist at three years old. That uh, that toddler of yours is pretty racist. Yeah, yeah, we need to combat that. One of the deans at Arizona State has officially come out and said that grading writing on the quality of the writing is now racist. It promotes White language. What? Of course it's white language, right? I mean, it's not the first time we've heard this type of statement. We've heard this notion that somehow uh, trying to adhere to any academic standard as it's been previously set was a way of trying to maintain white dominance. 
It is white supremacy in play. Now, I have yet to adequately hear why that is because I personally don't think that a person of color is any less capable of learning the rules of communication with any, any given language. Languages are created for a specific reason, and if you want to communicate with other people speaking a specific language, you need to learn that language, right? <gasps> now, did you hear what I just said? we got a crisis on the border. We've got kids running around. Now, I'm sorry. It's not a crisis. It's just a challenge. It's a crisis, guys. When the people in charge happen to be Democrats, the media and the Democrats say, oh, it's a challenge, but we'll figure it out. If it's Donald Trump taking care of business on the border, well, it's a crisis, and it's a constitutional crisis too because he's using money. He's Well, again, nothing new. The playbook's pretty old. It's almost mind-numbing. But this is where we're at. How is grading a paper based on the quality of the writing racist? Uh, now, clearly, again, my white fragility must be showing because I don't get it. And I, I, I'm not going to make the mistake of asking a person of color to explain it to me because that too is racist. I, I, that's been explained quite frequently several times here recently. <laughs> <laughs> Forp in the chat room says the Grinch always steals my Christmas. How racist is that? Uh, I, I, I just immensely racist. Forp, I, immensely racist. I don't know what else to tell you. But we talk about these things, and, and I find it amazing too that when we talk about Dr. Seuss, the defense from the left is, oh, "Why do you care about children's books?" Not well, we. We didn't start this. By, you guys came for the children's book. So why why do you care about the children's books? No, no, I, I, we asked you first. It's like, no, but we're responding to you. We care because we actually know what you're up to. With each level of success and in indoctrination, you realize that it's more successful. It takes hold better the earlier – you reach the kids. So now, of course, we have toolkits for three-year-olds to try and make them anti-racist, which actually is a lot like being racist. I just – I find myself awash. I, I'm drifting on the ocean of leftist insanity. I mean one, one of the upsides of not – being uh, on as much as I had been uh, is the fact that it's extremely frustrating, and it's a lot of the same story. What are we looking at? We're looking at uh, the House trying to push gun control through, full blast, legitimate, full-blown gun control. Is it constitutional? They don't care. Now we've got the uh, effort to nationalize elections and basically nationally demand, require every worst possible practice in an election. Uh, while getting rid of all the good practices that actually helps to secure a legitimate election of duly uh, citizens of the country that actually have the right and responsibility to be knowledgeable enough to vote. Uh, we, we've got to do that now. Is that constitutional? No. Does that matter? No. Again, the Constitution is an obstacle, and now they're pretending like it's not even there. 
they would like for us to believe that the Constitution is not even a speed bump. I, I, I don't know how far people are going to allow them to push before they start pushing back legitimately. I mean we've, we, we see them trying to use the riot at the Capitol back on January 6th as kind of a cudgel. Trying to say, oh, see, this is what all conservatives are. This is bad. Those were just some people that got a little excited, got carried away, and did some stupid stuff. Some uh, way more stupid than others. Most of them were little more than trespassers. The majority of them just went to places they shouldn't have went. We pretty much know at this point that none of the people that they claim were murdered by this insurrectionist crowd were actually killed as a result of anything the crowd did. The only people that died uh, were the insurrectionist crowd, which please, for the love of Pete, can we get these folks to stop calling it an insurrection? <laughs> it wasn't an insurrection. It didn't come close to an insurrection, and it's not going to be an insurrection. But you do have a group of people, leftists primarily, who want to make sure that there are militarized barriers between the people of the United States and their cushy little offices in the Capitol now. They're upset that a lot of the National Guard were about to come home, so what do they do? Uh, they're demanding that the National Guard remain. At some point, all of the governors, even the governors from the blue states, are going to get fed up with their people not being treated well. As, as I'm sure most of you heard, we had some of the National Guardsmen who found metal in their food, had one uh, got very sick because the food was undercooked that was offered to them. Uh, they're not being treated well, haven't been treated well, again, primarily by elected officials with a D at the end of their name since their arrival. They're to protect them. And I'll remind everyone that needs to be reminded, and there's a lot of, again, those elected officials with a D at the end of the name that really do need to be reminded of this probably more than anybody else. But if you're there to do the people's business, if you actually are doing it, the people, while they may occasionally be unhappy with you, they're generally going to support you for doing the people's business. When you have to get men with guns to erect barbed wire fencing and walls for you to hide behind, hiding from the people, then maybe you've forgotten who it is you work for. And, and see, it, it's all about imagery, though, and it, it's a double image. It's, it's this double image going on the whole time. They're like, we're in charge because we got the guns and we've got the barbed wire and the walls. We're in charge, but it's also, do you see how bad those crazy conservatives are that we have to do this? It's like we work in a militarized zone. Yes, yes, it is like that because you wanted to make it that way. You called for that. You got the capital, the United States of America, looking like a second district region of a third world country, we're crying out loud, and that's you. Never mind the fact that it's all but full-on documented at this point that Nancy Pelosi was the reason why there weren't more National Guards and more Capitol Police on duty and ready to respond and reinforcements in place at the time the riot took place. And I'm perfectly content calling the January 6th bit a riot because it was. It meets the definition of a riot. 
for the love of Pete, it was not, is not, could not have been an insurrection. Most of them were not armed. The only people who died were people that were involved with the trespassing that actually died as a result of actually what happened. I mean the closest thing they had was the officer who, by the looks of things, probably had a stroke. They're still desperately trying to find uh, some way to blame it on one of the rioters. And, and now Swalwell saw this earlier today. I, I didn't get the opportunity to read it, but I saw the headline. Evidently, Representative Swalwell is suing Donald Trump over the insurrection. Come on. Do you really want to do that? I mean, have you thought about it? Has anybody with a D at the end of their name really thought about what it's going to take to take Donald Trump to court over them? What kind of information is going to come out? Because, hey, guys, there's a reason why the Dems decided not to call witnesses at their little sham of a show trial where they were pretending to be trying to impeach Donald Trump for the second time. They wanted it. <laughs> then the Republicans, surprised, were going to let them have it because they wanted to call witnesses too. Nancy Pelosi would have most likely been asked why it was that she refused to let the Capitol Police respond faster, why it was she didn't want National Guardsmen already on site. Things that now there's plenty of documentation out there that Donald Trump himself had already said. <laughs> Of course, before makes a very good point in the chat room just now. He says, leftist courts don't care about facts. Beware, Donald. And uh, he's right about that. We've got plenty of leftist activist judges in places, and maybe the Dems get it steered into one of those courts. But nah, the appeals process is still there, and eventually you can get enough of this information into the general public that uh, enough people will finally – had enough. All right, so um, now here we are. We are quickly, already nearly at the halfway point of this second hour, and it is amazing to me how quickly these uh, two-hour broadcasts go when I have multiple guests. It's just astounding. Uh, I feel like I barely dug into any of the topics, which is why, again, I'm thinking about maybe playing with the, uh, the formatting for the weekend show and uh, doing it as more of a just pre-recorded here's me with the stuff I want to get to. But again, I, I still would like some feedback from you guys on that. So feel free to to either send me a message if you're one of the folks that follows me on uh, social media, what the few places I'm still allowed to hang out, or uh, if you want to send me a message through the website and you can go to tap into the truth. That's t a p p into the truth dot com. And uh, near the bottom of the homepage, there's a couple of ways that you can send me a message, so uh, feel free to do that. <laughs> Vorp in the chat room just uh, just said that if, if if Vorp wasn't here, I wouldn't have a show. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I'm not going to argue. I, I, Made enough comments in the uh, chat room tonight and that I have repeated on air. Uh, certainly deserves full credit uh, for uh, production, uh, one of today's producers, and uh, possibly could even collect a uh, co-host uh, tag here in a little bit. <laughs> it keeps making the great contributions. Uh, Chief, not to be outdone, however, did mention here a little while ago, uh, back when we were talking about racism, said, you want to see real racism? 
look at how the purple people leaders treat the little green men on the planet Zontar, which, by the way, is where uh, Chief claims to be from. All right. Uh, Cliff Clavin. Cliff Clavin of the internet. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go ahead and get the mid-hour break out of the way uh, a smidge early. And uh, where we end up at, we'll see if uh, if I can't go ahead and get our guest, Mr. Mark Mix, on with us uh, on the other side. If not, we uh, may have a little bumper music in, in between. But let's start out with a little Ron Edwards. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was one of the most famous American poets during the 19th century, an ardent abolitionist. He wrote the poem, The Building of a Ship, which addressed his fear that slavery would destroy our nation. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, Wadsworth's poem states, and I quote, Thou too shall sell in, O ship of state, sail on, O union, strong and great. Humanity and all its fears, with all the hopes of future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate. Our hearts, our hopes are with thee. Our hearts, our hopes, our tears, our faith, triumphant or our fears, are all with thee, are all with thee. In January of 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt included the first five lines of Longfellow's poem in a handwritten letter to British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and stated the verse applies to your people as it does to us. Churchill was deeply moved, and he saw the letter as a symbol of the two nations' growing partnership. Give us the tools, Churchill told President Roosevelt, and we will finish the job. Today, hopefully, we will acquire the tools needed to overcome those seeking to literally enslave we the people and destroy our republic. God bless the USA, and may the USA bless God. I'm Ron Edwards. Check out the RonEdwards.com. Ron Edwards, the new voice of America. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. This is Dan Perkins for your songs and stories for soldiers, veterans, tip of the day. Did you know that the VA drastically expanded telehealth during the pandemic? Telehealth allows you to stay in your home and visit with a doctor. Prior to the outbreak of the epidemic, the VA system conducted about 2,500 telehealth video sessions daily. Today, it's increased a thousand percent with more than 25,000 telehealth calls every day. Here's your veterans tip of the day. Make contact with your local VA facility and find out how you can enroll in telehealth. It'll improve the quality of your care. This has been your Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us Veterans Tip of the Day. Let's talk about guns purely from a self-defense perspective. How many people are there in America? Well, if you said just over 300 million, you're correct. It's closer to 325 million. Now, let me ask you this. How many acts of violence are there per year in America? Well, if you said just over 1 million, you're correct. It's approximately 1.2 to 1.3 million. So if there are just over 300 million people in America and just over 1 million acts of violence occurring in America every year, what are your chances of being the victim of one of those attacks? Well, if you said 1 in 300, you're correct. I don't know about you, but I don't like those odds. I know your odds might change depending on where you live, but if you live in an area with less crime, wouldn't that make someone else's odds go up? I mean, the number of people in America didn't change, and the number of violent attacks per year didn't change. Some of the highest crime rates in America are in Democrat-run cities, where there are the strictest and most restrictive gun laws in the country. 
putting good people at risk because they can't defend themselves. The anti-gun left and anti-freedom groups like the Everytown Gun Grabbers continue to paint a dishonest picture of guns in America by telling you that guns cause violence. This is why they push the term gun violence. It's to help people who aren't paying attention believe that if we were to remove guns, the violence would magically go away. The truth is, not having a gun is more likely to make you a victim of violence. Two and a half million times per year in America, guns are used to save lives. This doesn't necessarily mean good guys killing bad guys. This most often means just the mere presence of a gun deters a bad guy. And by the way, 46% of those defensive gun uses are by women. The more guns are restricted, the more people are put at risk. The people who try to scare you and convince you that guns are the problem ignore the fact that we're all potential for being a 1 in 300 statistic. The people who ignore this are the same people who will purchase a lottery ticket with a 1 in 20 million chance of winning. They ignore the facts when pushing their agenda, and they know the odds that they're creating are dangerous. Human violence in America is not an argument for more gun restrictions. It's an argument for more guns in the hands of good people. So regardless of how desperate the anti-gun left is to disarm Americans, we've found a simple and effective way to defend yourself from violent attacks, rapes, carjackings, or shootings. Shoot back. Anti-gun hypocrisy has run rampant because of a dishonest media and an anti-gun political party that's willing to sacrifice our great American values, put good people at risk, and destroy cities with unnecessary violence just so they can gain political power. It's time we understand their strategy so we can defeat them. Our founding fathers saw these tyrants coming over 200 years away. That's why the Second Amendment was written. I'm Dan Watts. To check out my webcast, go to LoadedMike.com. To check out my book series, go to GoodGunBadGuy.net. above the gun Hear the wind Across the plain There is no fear That I must contain And I'm in the eye Of the hurricane I see the sweat Across his brow All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much for staying with us through that very brief break. And it is my uh, honor and privilege to once again welcome back to the show uh, a gentleman who has been with us before when we've been discussing the idea of right to work because Mr. Mark Mix happens to currently be serving as the president of the National Right to Work Committee and 
pulling double duty, president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again, uh, Mr. Mark Mix. Mark, thank you so much for uh, spending uh, part of your very busy uh, weekend evening with us. And uh, as always, we appreciate you being here, sir. Uh, before we jump into anything, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for the opportunity to be on. And uh, this week was busy, but next week's going to be even busier because it looks like uh, the House representative is going to take up a bill that's going to wipe out all 27 right to work laws. So we've got some work to do next week, too. But it's good to talk with you tonight. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, well, you know, that's actually why I've uh, asked you to come on tonight. Uh, we've been watching the uh, Democrats. Uh, think they're just going to gallop through a whole bunch of wild and crazy so-called progressive wish list items, and they've kind of shortchanged uh, labor unions uh, with their uh, initial actions, and this is kind of an appeasement thing it looks like to me, uh, a great way to buy in. I was reading an article earlier on one of those uh, sites from you know the folks that write from the other uh, perspective over there, yeah. and, and they were trying yeah. to play it up. Like like the PRO Act is this all about the uh, new movement, uh, the labor movement is back, and it's strong, and America is going to be – and it couldn't possibly be any further from the truth, much like a lot of the things those folks like to say, not naming any names. But uh, yeah, let's, let's jump right into things. You mentioned this. Uh, the PRO Act is – this isn't the first time they've tried to bring it forth, but they've reintroduced it, and they seem to think they've got a lot more energy. Uh, what's some of the bigger threats that we have that's part of this act? Yeah, the the bill passed actually last February in the last Congress with 224 votes, and, and the Democrats have a few less votes this time. But I think the fact that they're going to bring it up to the floor is indicates that they're just going to pass it there and send it over to the Senate where the real fight begins. But the bill is literally just about anything that organized labor has wanted over the last 50 years and tried to get and been unsuccessful, and it's all in one big package now with a bow on it. And the first big part of it is, as I mentioned earlier, the repeal of all the right-to-work laws. But it has everything else that they've asked for for all these decades, and it includes basically uh, uh, the elimination of the secret ballot election. They'll still – the secret ballot election for union certification will still be in place, but the unions have this ability to immediately trigger a card check election. And I think we've talked about that before, where if I can just get you to sign a card – that is tantamount to a vote for unionization. No matter what the card says, it just says, yeah, I'm interested in the union or whatever. That turns out to be a vote. And so the other parts of this are binding arbitration where the, the federal government, a mediator from the federal government, can actually impose a contract on a private business. There's uh, AB5, which is this uh, disaster from California that uh, basically turned all independent contractors into employees. I'm talking about Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, freelance journalists. These people all would become employees and then, of course, subject to unionization, which is the goal of the bill. And to your point, the, the, the rhetoric about this being for workers couldn't be further from the truth. It's about giving union officials more power to force more workers into unions. That's what it's all about. Yeah. After all, that's where the power of the union comes from, right? Now they've got to get those union dues, whether they do anything good for you or not. Uh, you know, again, some of the yeah, things right. that we have discussed in the past, uh, we we have looked at these uh, these. In my mind, they're they're kind of just tricks. They're administrative tricks. Uh, something that the folks in D.C. are very familiar with. Uh, 
What do you think the uh, likelihood of this getting through the Senate might be? Because right now it doesn't look like any Democratic notion, let alone a legitimate law, is having anything more than just the occasional slight little speed bump over at the House. Uh, the Senate is still where there's a legitimate chance where people will have to stand up where some Democrats that are in purplish districts might have to answer to a constituency that's not happy. Uh, what does it look like from your perspective, the odds of this getting through the Senate? Well, Tim, what they have to do is they have to change the Senate rules in order to get it done. I mean I don't think anyone believes, including Richard Trunka, the AFL-CIO, or Joe Biden if he's paying attention – that they have the 60 votes to actually overcome the extended debate that we're hopeful and, and pretty confident would occur when they're trying to pass something as outrageous as this bill. So what they have to do is they have to convince a number of senators to use the what Harry Reid used way back when he was the majority leader to get to some of Barack Obama's uh, appointments done and use what they called then the nuclear option to basically change the rules by a simple majority. And uh, it, it didn't work out real well for the Democrats because when President Trump took over and Republicans had control, they used the same tool to basically fill up the judiciary. But what they're going to have to do is change the rules to make sure that uh, – or to ensure that the Senate is simply a majority body. That means that 50-50 votes get decided by Kamala Harris, the vice president. But it, right now there are a couple of Democrats that are standing up and say they don't want anything to do with changing the rules and ending the filibuster because that's really – the one thing – and Richard Trumka was uh, – the AFL-CIO president was quoted today, well, well, that's one thing we can do. There are other things we can do. Um, they've tried budget reconciliation, which is the one time when the Senate does their business that actually the a majority vote does uh, rule when it comes to appropriation issues, and they're going to try to amend appropriation bills or budget bills with legislation, which is really uh, against the Senate rules again. They're going to have to break the Senate rules to do that. But I don't, I don't ever, um, you know, uh, underestimate them and underestimate the power of, of Chuck Schumer and those that they're here in Washington and have been institutions for years. They, they know how the, the system operates, and if there's a will, there's a way, and they're going to try, and we're going to have to stay vigilant and continue, as you mentioned, to contact our legislators and let them know that we oppose any compulsory unionism, any forced unionism being reinstated, particularly in the 27 states that have right to work now. Right. I mean, I know one of your goals, part of your agenda, and a very worthwhile one, is to try and expand right to work as opposed to see it shrink or, in this case, literally go away. Uh, just the the amount of damage that this would do to the economy, to uh, individuals' ability to improve their lives should they get a job. And I I constantly hear the argument, especially from folks that are in a union somewhere and they're feel like they're getting a good deal. And it's it's always kind of funny. The folks that are really enjoying being in a union are the people that are really kind of mooching off the backs of the folks that are still working hard. At least that's been my experience as of late. Uh, so many folks are doing the work, and the rest of them are getting the benefit of those folks that are doing the work. Uh, as an individual, though, if you're one of those folks doing that work, if you were not involved in collective bargaining, if you bargained individually, you could probably get a much better deal, and it would be a lot easier to uh, weed out those employees uh, for uh, businesses, corporations, whatever it may be, that maybe don't bring the best value to the table. It would be a better deal not just for the companies and not just for the employees, but also for consumers in general. 
It's a math equation that we just can't seem to get people to understand anymore. But with all that being said, uh, we're still looking at people that are determined to try and push through things. And when it comes to those institutionalized uh, office holders that you mentioned, I'm getting a, a very strong vibe from them, and it's been, been getting worse and worse over the last decade that they just don't really seem to care about rules or even the Constitution anymore if it's an impediment to what they want. Yeah, absolutely, Tim, and, and you make great points. I mean you know, the, the, the unionization system in the country allows union officials to have monopoly control over the voices of everyone in the workplace, and, and you're right. There are individuals who want to work hard, that want to do as best, the best they can, and those people are often held back by these union contracts. And, and when it comes to you know, the operation of Congress, I suspect that uh, there were, there were uh, battles in Congress back in the, in the early 1900s, in the 1930s, in the 1940s, and the 1950s that at that time seemed like they were out of control. But it does seem, Tim, I've been doing this for 35 years, and, and the, instead of debating the merits and demerits of legislation, instead of debating the impacts of, of what legislation or new laws would have on the country or the economy or individuals – it seems like it's more about taking power. It's more about a partisanship, and it's on both sides too. It, it, it's not uh, reserved for one party, but you're right. I mean this idea of skirting the rules and changing the way the game is played so that you can get what your special interest wants is something that occurs – it seems to be with more – with more, there are more occurrences now than there was in the past that I remember. And you know, on the state side, we've got a couple of states that are looking at right to work. We've got a, a, a bill we passed it in the New Hampshire Senate. We're going into the New Hampshire House next month, and hopefully, we'll get a, a positive vote there. And we've got a governor that wants to sign it. So we passed uh, five new right to work laws in the nat in the last nine years. And I think that's one of the reasons, Tim, why these folks are so eager to stop us. Uh, you know, this bill would not only eliminate the 27 right to work laws on the books, but it would prohibit any state from passing one in the future. That's what this is all about. So uh, I think our success has been uh, problematic for organized labor officials because what we do simply is we give workers the choice. And if those workers out there that you talk to, they're happy with their unions, that's ideal. They have voluntarily joined and, and feel like they're getting value. That's kind of the way our system works. But we don't contemplate the notion that we force you, Tim, or me, or anyone into a private organization that they don't want to associate with. And that's really the secret of, of voluntary unionism. That's the secret of right to work. Yeah. Well, uh, let, let me uh, play devil's advocate for a second because first and foremost, I, I firmly believe that in the end – uh, enough people will stand up and do the right thing even if it's for the wrong reason, and, and I like to believe that there's <laughs> enough integrity left, at least among a few folks, uh, that this will most likely not get through Congress even if they change for – well, get through the Senate, I should say. But uh, playing devil's advocate uh, and imagining that uh, Schumer and company do find a way to, to get that push through, and then, of course, uh, Joe Biden – uh, goes ahead and rubber stamps it because you know that's pretty much what he's going to be doing. I would imagine. I haven't seen anything that would indicate otherwise. Uh, at that point, does the strategy for your organizations becomes moving towards the Tenth Amendment and nullification and having the states fight uh, to to continue their efforts uh, in defiance of the federal mandate? Well, Tim, that's a great question. You would think that the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment, I mean, they, it was so important to the, the founders that they limit the power of the federal government and, and ba basically ensure that the states had, had 
the upper hand when it came to laws and statutes that affected people, um, that you'd think those those amendments would give, be a clear signal that 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 you know Congress couldn't do this, couldn't take away something the state had done. But unfortunately, we've had this fight already. Back in 1935, when Franklin Roosevelt pushed through the New Deal, part of the New Deal was the the so-called Wagner Act, that is today's National Labor Relations Act. And basically, what happened then is the federal government took over labor management relations for all private sector workers across the country. And the, the original attempt at passing the Wagner Act and this federal impingement or infringement on states' rights was introduced in 1933, and actually the Supreme Court struck it down as unconstitutional. Uh, no surprise to you, Tim, but Roosevelt re, you know, re, reorganized things and, and sent a message over to the Supreme Court and said, look, if you don't make this constitutional, we think there's uh, seven or six justices on the court that are probably old enough that they need an associate judge. So literally, Tim, they were talking about packing the court back in 1935 to get this stuff through. And basically what happened, they sent the Wagner Act up in 1937. The Supreme Court ruled that the federal government would control labor management relations. And so from 35 to 47, obviously the union movement grew dramatically. In 1947, when people looked around at what had happened, we had about 4 million private sector workers out on strike during the period right after the World War II and between 47, and they said, we need to do something about that. So what they did is they passed the Taft-Hartley Act, which gave states the privilege, and I'm using my words carefully here, the privilege to pass right-to-work laws, saying that we know that federal law is preempted, that preempts all state law as it relates to private sector employment. But we're going to give the states the ability to outlaw the closed shop if they can do it by affirmative vote. Obviously, 27 states have done that since 1947. And so what the government granted, the government can take away. And the thing that the PRO Act would do would go back into the federal labor policy and say you can't have right-to-work laws. And basically that would eliminate all 27 and make it impossible to pass them in the future. Obviously, we'll litigate it, but you know this notion of uh, – well, I mean – I don't know how John Roberts votes on this. I don't know how Brett Kavanaugh votes on this. Um, it's really it's really scary to think about that, but there's been a battle over the constitutionality of this in the past, and the Supreme Court, when threatened with a court packing, said, yeah, 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 we'll let the federal government do this. So um, we haven't litigated that specifically based on you know them repealing 27 right-to-work laws, but I think the union could make a big case, and I think when they drafted this legislation, they knew that. So, you know, while right to work laws are operative in states, it's a privilege, quote, granted by the federal government. And that's what uh, where we are right now. And that's why they've got this language in this bill. Yes, uh, very, very sadly, a lot of these people uh, holding office have kind of forgotten who it is they work for. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the privilege. Uh, I do love the wording, though. Uh, they they do have yeah. that uh, ring of authority. All right. Yeah. Uh, as always, sir, I, I greatly appreciate your time uh, with us. Uh, real quick, you've already mentioned a couple of other things you're doing, but if there's any other projects you'd like to uh, share that you guys will be working on, feel free. And then in the meanwhile, please share the websites to your organizations for anybody who might be looking to get contact. And if you invite people to follow you personally on social media, uh, feel free to share that as well. Well, Tim, thanks. I don't. I don't think I have a social media account. I someone uh, someone in our office put together a Facebook page that hasn't been updated. But I so I do think I have a Facebook page. But the National Right to Work Committee does have a social media. They have a Twitter account and they have a Facebook page. And and you can find us on the amazing internet at nrtwc.org. Nrtwc.org. That's the committee. You can find out about legislation that's pending in your state legislature. Uh, you can find out about legislation that's pending in Congress and what the latest is uh, of what we're watching and what we're trying to push. 
And then at the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, which is nrtw.org, nrtw.org, you can look at what your legal rights are in every state in the country as it relates to unionism and what uh, what you can do or don't have to do uh, when it comes to unionism. And uh, there's a lot of information there. You can talk with an attorney for free. We have 22 lawyers who do nothing but represent employees who have had their rights violated by forced unionism. And it's been a privilege to, to be with both organizations for a lot of years and, and see all the good that we can do and, and freeing workers to have a choice in America's workplace. Absolutely. It's certainly a worthwhile goal and one that I appreciate you picking up that mantle and fighting along with all of your colleagues. Uh, sir, obviously, a lot of things uh, to keep an eye on right now moving uh, through Congress from the House over to the Senate. This is just one of them, but it's a pretty important one <laughs> along with some of the others. Uh, hopefully, we can get back together soon, and uh, hopefully, we'll be talking about a uh, positive outcome on this one, Mark. In the meanwhile, keep up the good work, sir, and thank you once again for joining us. Tim, my pleasure. Thanks for your interest, and thanks for helping us get the word out. Appreciate that. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that, of course, is Mr. Mark Mix. He is, as I've already told you a few times, he's the president of the National Right to Work Committee, as well as currently wearing the second hat of being the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. Uh, so the PRO Act, don't you love – some of these names that they assign these uh, spin, spin, spin. When when did it become so spun out of control that we just completely lost touch with reality? And by we, in this case, I mean these guys, because uh, they name it these crazy stuff that's in some cases literally the opposite of what they're trying to call it, and they count on the average. American voter, the average American who's suspecting that these people that they elected are actually going and doing things in their own interest, they count on them to be ill-informed. They're counting on them to be uh, going minding about their own business and paying more attention to what LeBron James is tweeting out than what uh, Nancy Pelosi is actually doing. They count on it. And in the meanwhile, voices like you hear on this show, uh, the various guests that come on, there, several of them. And I think part of the appeal of this show is we bring on people with different points of view, and I even have brought on folks that literally have the opposite point of view of what I have. Now, granted, I don't do that very often, but it is fun to occasionally, as uh, Chief is quick to remind everybody, Chief hanging out in the chat room, and uh, quick shout-out to Truth Sharks. There's uh, a name in the chat room I haven't seen before, so welcome. Uh, Vorp uh, points out <laughs> that perception is reality, and for a lot of folks it is, and uh, these folks are counting on it, though. The Chuck Schumers, the Nancy Pelosi's, even... The Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes, who I'm not convinced that she actually has that same fundamental grasp of what she's really propagating, what she's up to. I, I tend to think that she is a victim of the indoctrination education system that we have going on and that she is a puppet for the Justice Democrat organization. 
But be that as it may, they're still out there. I firmly do believe that Nancy Pelosi knows exactly what she's up to. There's a reason why she invests over a million dollars in Tesla right before Joe Biden announces he's going to be converting the entire government fleets over to electric. Really good chance that even if they don't buy from Tesla Motors, that Tesla's stock is still going to get a bump from that? Hmm. Of course, we've talked about the issues of congressional insider trading in the past. Firmly believe that Chuck Schumer is well aware of what the ramifications of every policy he makes, pushes, stands up for. Every effort they make, every time they do something, even thinking back to freaking Harry Reid, who was so proud of himself for lying about Mitt Romney's tax returns. So proud of himself. After the fact, asked point blank, uh, you knew all along that he had paid his taxes. Worked, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it worked. Isn't that fantastic? Chief, of course, uh, says that he lost uh, touch with reality decades ago. And yet he still seems to have a better grip on how things are supposed to be uh, than folks that uh, are supposedly leading uh, using air quotes, which works really great on the radio, air quotes on leading uh, the the nation. Much better grasp on how reality should work, how things should be going. These people know. You know, Joe Biden did know at some time, uh, some point in the past fifty years or nearly fifty years that he spent in D.C. He he knew. Not so. Certain anymore how much he knows today. I, I again, I, I really think that if if actual justice was to be served, that there's some people right now that needs to be charged with elder abuse for what they've done to Joe Biden. And I'm not a person that really has sympathy for Joe Biden. Joe Biden has been a jerk most of his professional career. He's legitimately been mean to people. If you were called before one of the committees that uh, he was on uh, and you had an opinion or you were presenting information that was contrary to the side that he was on, he would do everything to try and destroy it. Joe Biden was cancel culture before we knew what to call it, and just not to the same extent. He wasn't out there trying to ruin your entire life. He just tried to blow you up publicly and was hoping it might have that effect, but it didn't actively pursue it after the fact. He didn't have the Twitter mob to come after you then. <laughs> Chief, <laughs> Chief says that uh, the reason he's got a better grasp on how things should be is because uh, how things should work has nothing to do with the reality of how things work for the people in charge. Another great point, and that's why I like Chief so much. <sighs> you know, I, if I get started now and uh, try to get another topic, I, I am just going to barely have a chance to do it. So I'm going to hold off uh, some of the other things I'd hope to talk about this weekend. I'll pick up on Sunday. Um, again, I'm inviting you folks to give me some feedback on the recorded episodes as opposed to the live ones. Uh, I'll look forward to seeing some of that. want to give uh, shout-outs once again to today's guest, uh, Michael Beatrice, of course, back in the first hour, and then Mark Mix there just a little while ago in this hour. And a special 
thanks to uh, the folks that came and hung out in the chat room with me. Uh, Chief, host of Simple Facts of Life. Yeah, you can check that out at blogtalkradio.com. Uh, easiest way is when you get to that landing page, you go to that little search bar at the top. You can put in QMCUSN. It'll take you right there. But if you happen to be listening to the rebroadcast on Terrestrial Radio, on one of those great stations that is kind enough to do that for me, maybe you're riding around and you're trying to remember that later. Uh, what, what were those letters again? Now, if you've been in the Navy, you won't have any problems remembering those letters because you probably know exactly what that means. In fact, you may have been. <laughs> Someone who held that very rank. But if if you're having trouble remembering, uh, just put in the search bar "simple facts of life." You'll have to scroll down just a little bit, but you'll find it. It'll be great. I also want to give a shout out to Vorpal Bite, who's been here most of the broadcast again, and life of the party in the uh, chat room. Uh, Plenty of great commentary. I had to share some of it with you, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. I don't share all the commentary, even some of the some of the great commentary, just because I want to encourage you guys to come join me live now that I'm back to being live again. And also want to uh, thank Truth Sharks for stopping by and uh, welcome, uh, and hopefully you'll come back and visit us again. In the meanwhile, that's going to have to be it for me tonight. Please remember that no matter what you take away from this broadcast, do not, do not for one second take anything that I've told you as gospel. Because what I want you to do is to go check it out for yourself. Be prepared to do your own homework, and most importantly, you really are going to have to use your brain if you want to tap into the truth. In the meanwhile, folks, you guys out there, please, please stay safe, stay healthy. And, you know, be smart, even if it kind of goes against your nature. That's it for now. I am out, but I will definitely be back live next Tuesday, and uh, I'm still trying to debate whether I'm going to do a recording for Sunday or not. So, uh, again, uh, let me know what you think. Meanwhile, I'm out for now, and see you soon. Have a great weekend, everybody.
hell.